He had Hitler who slaughtered six million of them. Person after person after person. He hates the Jew. And he hates you. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, and today we conclude a message from chapter 12 entitled, Israel's Great Escape. Pastor Carl is in verse 11, which addresses the day the Israelites will overcome the devil by the word of their testimony about Messiah, Jesus Christ. As we pick up, we're reminded of the power of our testimony when we're faithful to share our faith with others. Some of you came back from last year's Easter Blitz and you were so excited and you had a chance to witness and you just sensed, man, a joy. And a number of you have come up to me and said, Pastor, I know the course on witnessing is over, but I'm still doing it. And one lady said to me, there's a new excitement, there's a new vibrancy in my life as I'm sharing my faith. Why is that? Because you are giving the Spirit of God freedom to fill you, to empower you when you share your faith. And I can tell you there'll be no unction in your life. There'll be no little victory in your life unless you are faithful to do what God has called you to. Now, I know that's old-fashioned for a Christian today to share his faith, but that's why America is going down the tubes, because the average Christian no longer shares the gospel, and they are quenching the power of the Spirit of God in their life. Here's three weapons these tribulation saints employed. They used the blood of the Lamb. Their second weapon was the word of their testimony. Look at their third weapon. They used their supreme love for Jesus. They used their supreme love for Jesus. Let me keep reading. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Listen, even when they were threatened with death, they didn't back down. Why? Because they loved their Redeemer more than they loved their own lives. They would sooner die for Jesus than to deny Jesus. They stood their ground. They faced a martyr's death, knowing that when life ended here, absent from the body, present with the Lord. They did not love their life even when faced with death. See that word love? It's the word agapao. We speak of agape love. We anglicize the word and we say it's God's love. Actually not. Holy God's love. It just refers to willful love. They love their evil deeds. Same word. It speaks of a willful choice, not just some emotional feeling. They willfully chose to love Jesus more than even their own life. Like the church at Smyrna, they were faithful even unto death. We discussed the blood of the lamb. That speaks of the principle of cleansing. That's the first tool that gave them victory. We spoke of the word of their testimony. That speaks of their public confession, sharing their faith. That gave them victory. But third, they did not love their life even when faced with death. That expresses total commitment. I mean, what can the devil do with a life like that? You lock them up in prison and they'll try to convert the people in there. You torture them and they'll rejoice that they are sharers in the sufferings of Christ. You kill them and they just go straight to heaven. Listen, you make the devil mad when you live this kind of a life. And so while the dragon, this evil one, is cast down to the earth, 
He now is going to wreak havoc like the world has never seen. That brings me to my second point. Beyond Israel who escapes condemnation, I want you to see how they escape his persecution. And there are a couple of things that are underscored here. First, the fury of Satan's attack. Here in chapter 12, again, he's focusing on the people of Israel. This is the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. If you haven't listened to the messages on Daniel 9, that's the schematic for the whole book of Revelation. It will really help you, so I'd encourage you to go and listen to those messages. But what I want you to see is how he is furious towards the people of Israel. And I want you to see how Israel will escape this persecution. You say, wait a minute, pastor. What do you mean by escape? Looks to me like they're getting killed left and right. Well, that certainly is one form of escape because absent from the body, present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. But there's other kinds of escape. And we're going to see how God preserves some of the people who go through the tribulation. And the reason why God preserves them is critically important when we come to the end of the book. But we'll wait till we get there. But what I want you to see is what God does. Look at the last part of verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. In other words, if you're in heaven at this point, it's a great place to be. But woe to the earth! And the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Satan knows he has only a short time. Now, the short time has already been defined for us twice in the passage as 1,260 days or three and a half years. Now, remember, he was in heaven accusing the brethren. But at this point, he is thrown down to the earth, And like a caged lion, he is furious. He wants to bring havoc and evil like the world has never, ever seen. He's been checkmated by Michael and his holy angels, and he is enraged. And so beyond his fury, think about the focus of Satan's attack that expresses that fury the focus of Satan's attack. And when the dragon, that's the devil, verse 9 tells us that, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, we studied the woman cannot be the church because the church is born by Christ. Christ does not bear the church. But in replacement theology, where the church is the new Israel, They have to play around with these verses and come to that conclusion. But don't reverse the order. It's Jesus who gave birth to the church on the day of Pentecost. But, of course, if you don't want to identify the church starting on the day of Pentecost, you say the church existed in the Old Testament, then you have no definitive time frame. But Jesus, speaking of a future time, said, I will build my church. And if you've taken my course in eschatology, on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, I give five proofs as to why the church didn't exist in the Old Testament, but began on the day of Pentecost. But neither can this woman be, as my Roman Catholics friends say, Mary. They say, well, Mary is the the woman here. No, it's not Mary. 
And again, to come to those conclusions, you have to allegorize the Word of God. Look again at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet with a crown of 12 stars. Again, we saw from Genesis 37, 9. I hope, again, you have that written out in the margin. That's a prophetic picture that God gives of Israel. And so verse 2, then verse 4, and now verse 13 describes the woman giving birth to Christ. Who gave us the Savior of the world? The Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child. In other words, the dragon, who is Satan, persecutes the Jewish people like he had never, ever persecuted them before. You think the Holocaust was bad. Six million Jews exterminated, by the way, all of which have been replaced. The prophet Zechariah tells us during this final period of time, two out of every three Jews on the earth are going to die. We'll study that. The focus of his attack is on the Jewish people. And I'm telling you, it's beginning to boil and it's growing, but we haven't seen anything yet. But then third, I want you to see beyond the fury of his attack and the focus, the failure of Satan's attack. Don't get lost in this forest of theology. I want you to see that during the second half of this seven years, there is a failure that the devil is going to meet. Now, remember the trigger point for this whole thing. Remember, he's speaking here about 1260 days. It's going to bring us right to the second coming. 1260 days, the last half of the seven-year period. And there's a trigger point right in the middle when Satan is cast down to the earth. It's called by Jesus the abomination of desolation. He spoke of it on the Olivet, mountain of Olivet. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. So he's on this mountain called Olivet, which is like a big hill, but the Bible calls it a mountain. So if God says it's a mountain, I say it's a mountain. We, we, you know, terms or whatever you define them to be. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. It's a big lake. There's no salt water in it. But if God wants to call it, he can call it whatever he wants. He makes the definitions. I don't, all right? So here he is on the Mount of Olivet, and they're asking him about his return from heaven. And it reminds him, look, when the people who are alive during this time see this event called the abomination of desolation, we're going to study it again. The Antichrist is going into the rebuilt temple. We're in Jerusalem two weeks ago, and the young people were cheering through the streets, let us rebuild the temple. Let us rebuild the temple. That's what they were singing. That's what they were cheering in the streets. Why? Because they know that for Messiah to return, the temple must be rebuilt. God's going to do it. And in the middle of that seven-year period, this man will go in. The fact that he claims to be God is not the abomination of desolation. Now, that's significant. But what we will see, it's what's accompanied with that claim that is going to open wide the eyes of the Jews, and they're going to see that this man cannot possibly be the Messiah. Luke said it in these words, then those who are in Judea, when this event takes place, must flee to the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, referring to Jerusalem. And so we've been seeing the truths that Jesus speaks of 
perfectly aligning with the book of Revelation. So we saw through the seal judgments a perfect match with the first half of the Olivet Discourse. Then when this trigger event takes place, the abomination of desolation, you see the other events that will take place, one of which in which Satan is cast down to the earth. And when that happens, listen to verse 14. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. This has nothing to do with America, by the way. We're not the great eagle here. People go wacko with some of their interpretations. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now, here's a chart that might be helpful to refresh your memory. If you remember, John mentions here a time which we learned from the book of Daniel was one unit. It refers to one year. Then he mentions times, plural. In Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a dual, and then there's three or more. Why do we have in most children's Bible two holy angels next to the flaming sword? Because it's a dual when he speaks of the cherubim. Here he speaks of two units or two years, and then half a time for a total of three and a half years. Daniel 9, Daniel 12, Daniel 7 mentions that. 42 months are mentioned, again, three and a half years. 1,260 days, again, three and a half years. And so Israel is fleeing from the dragon, here called the serpent, and two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. What does that mean? Well, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. He assumes we have some knowledge of the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, the wings of an eagle are used to describe God's help, God's protection, and God's care. For instance, in that great chapter, Isaiah 40, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. In the Exodus, God used this same description when he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In describing for his care for them for 40 years in the wilderness, God said, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. And so when God says here, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, he's describing his supernatural care for the Jewish people during this time. You say, how will it come? Well, you know, God has could do it a lot of creative ways. He cared for Elijah at that brook called Cherith, Some of you saw that very brook that Elijah was at when we were there at the Mount of Carmel recently. And it was there, of course, that God brought a fish to him every day. You know, I I know of a brother, I heard him on staff with Campus Crusade, who was in Vietnam, how God supernaturally, kind of like Elijah, brought a fish right to where he was every day when he was hiding for his life, and he'd just grab it with his hands. God is so great. God is so powerful how he can do that. Maybe he will care for them through Gentiles. You know, in the Mount of Olivet there in Matthew 25, Jesus describes how certain nations, when the nations, meaning not America and Germany and France, but, but the ethnoi, the, the, the ethnicities of this world will be judged. They will be judged in how they treated Israel for those who cared for them in, in prison, who clothed them when they were naked, who fed them during this uh, seven-year period when they had nothing to eat will demonstrate that they have 
genuine faith, and they'll be welcomed into heaven. And those who persecuted them will demonstrate that they were in unbelief and will be forever put away. God may care for them through Gentiles. Maybe God will care for them like he cared for the people there in the wilderness, whether it's those who care for the least of these, my brethren, by providing physically. There's another dimension by which God supernaturally cares for them, and that he tells them to go into the wilderness. Now, follow this. Now, remember when we're in the book of Daniel, the 11th chapter, the chapter divided into two halves, kind of like Isaiah 14, kind of like Ezekiel 28, where the first half describes a natural king who is alive, and the second half a coming king. The first half as Isaiah 14 describes a, a natural king. The second half describes Satan behind the king and so forth. Well, in the second half of Daniel 11, if you remember, we have one of the most detailed discussions on the Antichrist in all the Bible. In fact, you will learn more about the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 11 than any other chapter in the Bible. And there it says in 1141, he, the Antichrist, will also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Who? Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. So Daniel reveals that three countries that God defines not simply by borders, but by ethnicities are going to be delivered. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Here's a map. Where do they fall? Modern day Jordan. Why is the Antichrist not going to wreak havoc on these three nations? Why is Satan not going to attack them? Because these three nations have hated Israel, have persecuted issue Israel, and maybe that will be Satan's way of giving them a pat on the back and saying, good work, boys. And so it's in these three nations that the Jews are going to flee to. Here's a picture of a place called Petra. Some of you have been there with me. Um, we're told, as Jesus said in the midpoint of the tribulation, you who are in Judea, not Dallas or New York or Washington, but you who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And so there are three nations that will be protected. And amongst this area, there's a place called Petra. Many Christian pastors and scholars think that this is where the Jews will go. I don't know for sure. I think it's a viable option. The only way to get into Petra is you can't go in there in a car, in a truck. You have to go on foot or a donkey. And when you walk into there, there's a whole city, so to speak. You say, well, how is that going to protect them? Well, why can't they just fly over it in a helicopter or drop a bomb on him from an airplane. We're going to see later why in the Revelation. Things are going to drastically change in the electrical realm as we know it. But we're told here in verse 15, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away by the flood. Let's say they're in Petra for the sake of argument. The devil is going to somehow harness a river of water, and that place is common for a number of large underground rivers and lakes. And somehow he's going to harness water and pour it into this place where the Jews are hiding, probably no doubt to try to drown the Jews. But on two occasions in the Old Testament, God opened up the earth in the book of Numbers, chapter 16, Exodus 15, and God's going to do the same. 
But the earth, verse 16, helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. He couldn't beat the Jew. So what does he do? He went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Once again, this woman cannot be Mary because we're told here the dragon is enraged. He goes off to make war with her children. Mary's children have been dead for 2,000 years. And of course, if you believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary as the Roman Catholics have, you have even greater problems because they identify the woman as Mary. So you have to even go into deeper allegorization as to what this all means. How do I know Mary had children? Matthew tells us, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not Mary? Is this not his mother called Mary and his brothers named James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters. Jesus had at least seven kids in the family. He's the oldest. He comes first through Mary's womb, through a virgin conception and a virgin birth. And then they have natural relations and other children. Can't be replacement theology. I mean, you just have to manipulate and twist and ruin the Word of God. I was speaking to someone recently. We were looking at the prophecy in Ezekiel. We were down there at the Dead Sea. I mean, you can float on the Dead Sea. It is the lowest place in the face of the earth, and the far end of it is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the lowest place in the face of the earth. It's the saltiest body of water in the face of the earth. There's not even the smallest, tiniest living organism in that place. But God says a day is coming when it will be filled with fresh water and people will dry their fishing nets next to it. Has that ever happened? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. Replacement theology denies prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and they manipulate the Word of God. Listen, this is going to happen, and the rest of the children, notice how they're described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The serpent, the devil, hates the Jewish people, he is the greatest anti-Semite who has ever lived and expressed hatred. He motivated Pharaoh to put them in bondage. He tried to destroy them at the Red Sea. He tried to eliminate Israel's true king by motivating Saul to kill David. He urged the enemies of Israel to stop the rebuilding of the wall so that they could not protect themselves. He later provokes King Herod to, uh, in, in, uh, to, kill, to try to kill the Son of God. He even tried to tempt Jesus to kill himself in the pinnacle of the temple. He stirred up the people in Jesus's hometown and brought them to that precipice called the Mount of Precipice, a place you can visit today, the only place in Nazareth where they wanted to be throw them off that cliff. He had Hitler who slaughtered six million of them, person after person after person. He hates the Jew, and he hates you. So how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications in the form of questions. Number one, ask yourself, do I recognize that I am in a real war? Now, time is going to grow desperate for Satan. He's going to recognize his time is short. And so like a cornered beast, he's going to pray on Israel. But I want to tell you, he's praying on God's people today. He not only hates the Jewish people, he hates the body of Christ. And sooner or later, if you grow in Christ, you will discover 
that the Christian life is not a playground, it is a battleground. Paul said, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of the darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are three enemies that wage war against the believer. And if you've been through the discovery class online, it's back to basics at searchthescriptures.org. There is three enemies, the world, meaning the society around us, that Satan is crafting in a growing way for evil. The world is not going to get better in the end. Don't be deluded by thinking that. It's going to get worse in the end, the Bible says. We're witnessing it. There's the world, there's the flesh. That's your fallen sinful nature within that is opposed to God. And there's the devil himself. But God has given us victory, and we explain how to realize that victory in the discovery class. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so we need to recognize this morning that it's not by accident that Satan is compared to a lie and a dragon because he wants to wreck people's lives and destroy God's people. So ask yourself this morning, secondly, am I using the weapons of my warfare? Am I using the weapons of my warfare? We underscored three today, the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and their supreme love for Jesus. How are you doing in your personal battle with Satan? How are you doing with the one who accuses you before the Father day and night? Are you relying daily upon the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from sin? Are you sharing the Word of God, the, the, the Word of the testimony that the Spirit of God might have total freedom in your life? And have you placed all that you have, loving Jesus more than your own life, placing it all on the altar, Jesus first and only Him? Now, this is a conflict that is in the future here in Revelation 12, but it's the same conflict that God's people have today. And so God wants to remind us that there's a bloodthirsty, unmerciful fallen angel who wants to wreck you. And you start living for Jesus, and you'll discover just how real the battle is. Finally, ask yourself, have I been transferred from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom? Look, there's only two kingdoms. If you've moved past the age of accountability, whatever that age was for you, you're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. There's only two groups of people, the sheep and the goats. There's only two roads, the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. There's only two groups of people, those who've been born once, those who've been born twice. There's the saved and the lost. You say, well, pastor, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any conflict in my life with the devil. It means either A, you're out of fellowship with God and you're not really living for Jesus, or more likely, you're just a tear. You look like a Christian, you talk like a Christian, but you're a part of that great multitude whom in the end Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me. Because I tell you, if you're asleep in the arms of the evil one, he's got you right where he wants you, and I promise you, he will not bother you. You don't want to be here 
on earth when this time unfolds. And you don't want to be with the evil one in hell when the wrath of God on the earth turns into the eternal wrath in hell. Today, there's still opportunity to call upon Jesus. For whoever will call on his name will be saved. To listen again to today's study from Revelation 12 entitled, Israel's Great Escape, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV30. Tomorrow we begin a look at the coming evil Superman as we move into Revelation 13. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.